0: deep listening deep listening. Well, we're going down to some of the deepest physical spaces for music today, and we're going deep inside our own listening to find strange soundscapes and weird reverberations. We'll find musical works created as soundscapes, as environments for our listening, and we'll think about a handful of pieces from the 19th to the 21st centuries that are designed as sonic environments as much as they're made as musical works. And thanks to the composer, Jez Reilly French, uh, who's with us today, we're going to listen to environments for from the depths of the earth to the resonances of empty concert halls, so that our ears attend to the profound sonic experiences that we can have when we open ourselves up to deep listening and to deep listening with a capital D and a capital L because we'll hear the band the practice and the way of relating to the world that the composer and improviser and sonic explorer Pauline Oliveros created in the late 1980s in Washington state in a disused military cistern and which became a philosophy that spread all over the world something we glimpsed uh, in the last talk in this series with the composer Rolf Hind. But before all that, just a wee note on the word soundscape, uh, which was coined as part of the musicological and compositional lexicon in the 1970s by R. Murray Schaefer, who you can see in all his glory here, telling us to listen quite right too. Uh, the Canadian composer and thinker. And Schaefer's broad approach is to treat sonic environments, whether man made or natural, urban or rural, as a network of sounds and energy that deserve. Scrutiny in the same way that musical works have been paid close attention and analysis. And Schaefer's goals are as ecological as they are musical. They prove the point that to listen deeply to these soundscapes that shape us and which we shape is to realize the environmental power of music and the musical power. Of the environment. He puts it like this, the soundscape of the world is a huge musical composition unfolding around us ceaselessly. We are simultaneously its audience, its performers and its composers. That's I think a beautiful summation of our combined responsibilities to our soundscapes. Now Schaefer regards music in the way that we usually define it at least as one small part of the soundscape of the world, and he's right, of course, as Jez Riley French will prove to us later. But in the first half an hour or so of this talk, I want to turn Schaeffer's ideas around and ask what happens when we treat musical works themselves as soundscapes, as total environments, instead of as self-contained objects. Our soundscapes, you see, aren't only those of the whole world, although they can be. For the time they last, Pieces of music, too, are immersive sonic environments. Now, to do this, uh, we'll need to think of musical works through all of the parameters of their creation, the contexts of listening created by their acoustics and the architectures where they're performed. We'll need to understand the symbiosis between composition and listening culture that these pieces create and all four of the situations that I'll briefly outline for you so that we can glimpse what this approach might offer. Uh, Soundscapes by Wagner, by Gustav Mahler, by Pauline Rivera, and John Luther Adams. Uh, require the existence of a way of listening in which we give primacy to the musical experience as the focus of our attention in concert halls or on recordings, as opposed to thinking of uh, an opera house or an auditorium as a place of social transaction, something we've demonstrated uh, in an earlier talk in this series. Well, Schaeffer himself quotes Wagner in one of his discussions in the book, you can see there, Our Sonic Environment and the Soundscape, the Tuning of the World. To the eye, Wagner says, appeals the outer person, the inner to the ear. And so let's start here, uh, in a place that looks like the most unlikely candidate for a a progenitor of an ideology of deep listening. This is the fabulously ornate Margravial Opera House in uh, in Bayreuth, one of the jewels of Rococo theatre design, completed in 1750 to the specifications of the Markovina Wilhelmina. But fascinating as Wilhelmina is, and the cultural splendour she brought to this North Franconian town by Hoyt in the mid 18th century. Well, the kind of listening that happened here uh, around that time would have been the kind of gilded, showy, noisiness of the contemporary Paris opera, as we experienced and, in fact, recreated here in the Museum of London uh, in an earlier uh, one of these talks. Instead, it's rather what happened in this theatre in the later 19th century that inaugurated a new kind of musical work, a new theatre, and a new music drama. Because Richard Wagner originally thought that this theatre, with its disproportionately large stage, could have been the vessel of his musical dramatic dreams. He considered it as a potential place for the premiere of the complete cycle of Der Ring des Nibelungen. Now, from what we know later happened, this seems almost unbelievable. I mean, the mythos of The Ring is another world from the gorgeous ostentatiousness of this theatre. And Wagner realised it wasn't right, too. It was too small, too rococo, too bright especially after Ludwig II had installed the theatre's first electrical lighting rig. But Wagner did conduct Beethoven's Ninth Symphony here in in 1872 to commemorate the laying of the foundation stone of his new theatre, on a green hill, just a short walk up from the train station, if you've ever been to Bayreuth. And that was what he built as the true realization of his compositional dreams. And this is the plan of Wagner's Festspielhaus in Bayreuth, as it was designed and built in the early 1870s. the plan represents a fusion of ancient Greek theatre design with modern technology. It's by Otto Brückwald, based on an unrealised design by Gottfried Semper for an opera house in Munich. And there are a few things that this stage plan, or rather this architectural plan, makes obvious. Because it realises Wagner's dreams for the democratic distribution of the audience. So that no one is more privileged here in Bayreuth than, than anyone else in terms of what they can see on stage. There are no aisles, there are no boxes in the body of the theatre. But yet, while there's a democracy in terms of the way the theatre is made, in terms of sight lines, no seat is better than any other, essentially, in Bayreuth, there is a hierarchy here in a different sense. Because sitting on the exquisitely uncomfortable chairs in the theatre there, there are no arms on either side of the seats, there, there's no velvet of any colour or stripe, no cushion at all to accommodate or cause it the bustles and finery of what audiences still wear ludicrously at the Bayreuth Festival every year. There is instead a complete focus on the stage, on art. Well, Wagner's democratic theatre then is really a place of total subjugation to the artwork, really Of course, to his artwork, in which our individuality is effaced by the absolute concentration we're now forced to give to what's happening on stage and to the world-changing and world-ending dramas that play out up there. Compare that to the Margravial Theatre or to the vast majority of 18th and 19th century theatres. Remember the earlier Paris opera the, uh, a few talks ago? Or think about the, the gilded extravagance of the golden assale of the Musikverein in Vienna, a golden temple to visual as well as musical splendour made for music in 1870. Or there's the wild extravagance of the opera Garnier in Paris, which was being built at the same time that Wagner was building the, the Festspielhaus in, in Bayreuth. Bayreuth's interior is positively austere by comparison it's not only the discomfort of those seats it's the lack of ornamentation and the fact that there's nothing to distract our eyes or our ears from the dramatic mythologies of wagner's music dramas happening up there on the bühne the stage now something else you'll notice in this image or rather you won't notice because you can't see them is that the musicians are invisible. For the first time in an opera house the whole orchestra and even the conductor are unseen and they're hidden because Wagner wanted the illusion of his theatre to be as complete as possible. So the messy choreography of the conductor, the bows and breaths and reeds and brassy tubes of those hundreds of musicians down there are the means through which the musical illusion is made but they're conjuring, like they used to say about. Children. Well, anyway, I'm not going to do the children gap. But the conjuring should should not be seen. What was, what's the thing? You know, children should be seen and not. Well, anyway, the point is that they. they thank you very much, Seen or heard. So they should they should be heard, but not seen. You anyway. I, that, <laughs> that was an unfortunate ad lib. The point is you can't see the musicians. That's where that's the point. I'm trying vainly to make. Um, the, and the, the the mythic idea of what that means as a theatrical experience uh, is is borne out in what you experience in the theatre because at the start of the Ring Cycle, the opening of Das Rheingold, which is this low E-flat major chord, the birth of the Rhine, the birth of the universe, the birth of myth, the birth of God's mankind and everything in between, Well, what happens is this sound emerges from underneath you, from underneath uh, those seats. It seems to come from some other place and then swells up to inundate you in the theatre. It's a perfect realisation of what Wagner wanted this theatre to do. But the Orchestergrab, which is what it's called in German, the orchestra pit, literal translation can also be orchestra grave. Uh, the musicians, though, are down there. Uh, and uh, here's an image of the meeting of those two worlds. And as you can see, the musicians are in, the t-shirt, in their T-shirts. They don't need to wear uh, concert gear. And the audience are, are in the tuxedos. Um, and this is an image from Stefan Herheim's production of Parsifal, uh, Wagner's last opera, in 2011, in which the grave, in fact, is twofold because that mound you can see on stage there, sort of crossing the threshold of the proscenium, is a, a recreation, a very precise recreation of Wagner's grave at his villa in Wanfried, which is just a short walk from uh, from the Festspielhaus in Bayreuth. Uh, just, I'll come back to Parsifal and we'll listen to it too, but. There's something else that Bayreuth as a theatre incarnates in the service of this new focus and concentration on the new religion of Wagner's music dramas, which is darkness, complete darkness in the theatre. It's something we take completely for granted now in our cinemas, theatres, opera houses, even concert halls nowadays. But it was Wagner who did it first... Oh, kind of. Uh, the Wagner that the audience experienced at the first production, uh, the opening of Bayreuth in 1876 of The Ring, was in fact a mistake. The gas lighting system uh, had only just been fitted, so it wasn't quite ready to be used, so Wagner just turned the lights off. Uh, and inadvertently discovered another essential feature of the Bayreuth experience, and actually you know, transformed the whole of theatrical history really, the near total darkness in the auditorium, just that faint glow from where the musicians probably reside, uh, and then the sound starts. Uh, There were were also grave limits to uh, the success of that illusion in the 1876 production, one of the the great things, an era before dry ice. So the only way you could create the absolutely essential smoke and vapour effects on stage was to use huge locomotive engines for steam. (laughs) So, what, you can imagine what happened. You know, you've got this going at the beginning of, uh, of Das Rangel, all those essential things, the rainbow bridge, you know, just these local, literal locomotive engines in the bowels of the theatre pumping up this steam into the, into the auditorium. So, of course, what happened? started to rain. And in fact, it started to rain on the instruments. So, you know, if you're playing, you, you, you know, some of the, and the other thing there is the violins, the, 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 the first violins are in fact on, on the right hand side, the second, side the, anyway, they were getting rained on and obviously going a little bit out of tune. Um, but anyway, it's it's not the ring cycle I want to play you. It's the opening of Parsifal, uh, this Bühnenweihfestspiel, as Wagner called it, a stage festival consecration play. That's a- great German translation, uh, that was premiered uh, by Wright in 1882, the year before Wagner's death. And, and look again at this production from, uh, from 1911. Uh, this, is, this is, in fact, the, the, the first production, the same as the first production that was seen in 1882, on stage, at least. And as you can see, the, the way that the, the staging, actually, the set design, merges into the architecture of the theatre, quite deliberate, this, of course, because it turns the entire theatre and everyone in it, in the Temple of the Grail, which is the climax of the first and third acts of Parsifal, we become celebrants at this temple of art. And this proves the point of what Wagner wanted Parsifal to be, which was an embodiment of art as religion. In 1880, he'd written an essay, Religion and Art, which he said that art needed to rescue the spirit of religion from conventional ideas of what the religious meant. Parsifal is proof positive of what he meant. Um, And it was this production... In in fact, and the idea of pilgrimage, the idea of temple... Uh, Wagner and Cosima, his wife, insisted that uh, the Parsifal only be played at Bayreuth, couldn't be performed anywhere else. That was their idea, ever, for all time. Uh, but in fact, there was an illegitimate production for the first time at the Met in New York in 1903, and of course, the piece is now performed uh, elsewhere around the world. But it, it sets the point about what Parsifal was supposed to be as uh, pseudo. A spiritual artistic religious experience but more than that in terms of the sounds it makes Parsifal is the only piece that Wagner actually wrote for Bayreuth of course the ring was premiered there but Parsifal was the only one he wrote when he knew what the theatre sounded like felt like and how it worked as an experience for all of us so it's a really a, a site-specific soundscape for for Bayreuth the whole of Parsifal and in the sounds that this piece makes the orchestra right from the start is conceived as a a series of sound masses rather than an assemblage of different instruments. Wagner makes his orchestra melt and merge into weightless, dreamlike vapours and exquisitely blended atmospherics. He's making music for these particular acoustics because, um, as you can see there, the the lip above the orchestra... In fact, it's better in the next one, you can see the sound in the theatre there, because of the way the lip of the orchestra is constructed, bounces, is directed to the back of the theatre first and then kind of comes back to, comes to us in the audience later. It, it's very difficult to conduct there because you have to deal with this, this, sort of, uh, this dislocation between the time you're conducting and the time the audience are hearing. Um, but it means the sound that we experience in the theatre is pre-mixed in this intoxicating, blended sound. So we're going to listen to the opening paragraph of the overture of Parsifal and uh, here it is, uh, here's what it looks like on, on, this is just the first page of the score, but there's a few things I can tell you about it. The, it starts with this unison melody, um, the, no harmony, no accompaniment apart from that tune, but the way he scores it there, it, it's uncanny, this melody, uh, because he creates a halo of timbre and colour around, around the sound. It's shared among the strings, bassoons, and then clarinets and anglais, and it's when it's etched down there in the orchestra pit, it also melts harmonic stability and our sense of pulse. It liquefies musical space and time, in other words. The notes float above and beyond the bar line, and what starts as an A-flat major arpeggio subsides into C minor to come back to A-flat, but you can see when, the, when, it, when it gets busier in bar six there, when the, the other woodwind instruments and the violas get going, uh, you've got a, a complete dissolution of time there. You've, you've basically got... A, kind of set against one another, divisions of nine and 16, so nine notes in the same time as 16. It sounds exquisitely precise, almost mechanistic, but the effect is absolutely precisely calibrated by Wagner to, to dissolve into atmosphere, so that we have this weightless sense of orchestral sound. So this music, uh, in my view, and really the whole opera, because, and then it's then through this prelude that the, the whole... It's a veil through which the whole drama of Parsifal then happens. And I think this piece is a, a, really a, a consecration of a deep listening practice that transforms an aesthetic idea into an environmental, immersive and transformative soundscape. So here is the first three minutes or so of the Prelude of Parsifal played at the theatre in Bayreuth. It's a very slow tempo, uh, but it's uh, worth hearing. This is Wagner's working sketch, which you can follow along if you like. There's a few seconds of just the theatre warming up and then it begins. So Parsifal is stage festival consecration play, well more like a site specific environment for deep listening, the depths of where the sound comes from, and the depth of the experience in which it invites us all to participate. Now, Wagner's innovations were a direct influence on perhaps the greatest operatic conductor of all time, who was also a composer, Gustav Mahler. And Mahler's symphonies, uh, taking further the innovations of everyone from Schubert to Tchaikovsky, and uh, above all, uh, Wagner, extend the idea of the musical work as soundscape, as an environment for new kinds of listening. His symphonies turn concert halls into simulacra of forests and alps, the first symphony, the third, the sites of apocalyptic and atheistic resurrection, the second stages for dramas of love and death, uh, the fifth and the sixth. But in terms of using the symphony as an environment in the concert hall for a heightened and a deepened listening soundscape, I want to show you the last page of Mahler's Ninth Symphony, composed in 1909-10. Now, a lot to tell you about here, about the 80 minutes of the symphony that happened before, but enough, as you can see, that... Uh, the 100 or so musicians, 100 and more musicians, 120 usually, who are used in Mahler's Ninth Symphony are here at the very end of the piece, uh, just hollowed out uh, to this uh, gossamer tendrils of just a few uh, string lines etched seemingly over uh, a silence or a a great stillness. Uh, The score itself looks voided and empty and you can see Mahler's uh, Mahler's advice to the to the performers how they should how they should play at the very the very final bar that word ersterben dying away uh, the piece is a is a bridge from this life uh, to the next from musical existence to non-existence not just pianissimo but but four P's, pianississimo now the the thing about this in performance this piece is a A realization of Schaeffer's idea of this threefold responsibility that we all have for our soundscapes as composers, uh, uh, as performers, and as audience members, and that we are doing that all the time. For the performers, they have to be so careful here. Any misguided bow stroke, any tiny, any intake of breath, let alone a wrong note—I mean, that's going to scar, scar what Mahler's doing here. But it's the same. The same is true for us in the audience. A rogue cough, a mobile phone. I mean, the, 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 we're, we are this, the, the existence of this page of music suggests that by the time Mahler's is writing it, he never heard it in his lifetime. It was premiered in 1912, but he's 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 writing it only for a listening culture in which an absolute concentration is possible for us. You know, the, the, the piece is written absolutely in dialogue with that expectation or that demand from us as listeners. Um, I want to play you a performance of it. Uh, it comes from the Lucerne Festival in 2010 with Claudio Abbado. Um, and you, you will see and experience how the audience then, and I'm sure you hear too, that the, at the end of this piece, there is, uh, the piece gives itself over to uh, an incredibly loud, it's not silence, there's no such thing as silence as we know from previous talks in this series. Nonetheless, there is a deep stillness that's created at the end of this performance. Um, so I invite you to participate in this as uh, listening participants in the soundscape of the end of Mahler's Ninth Symphony. Um, here we go. Um, yeah, I, it's quite emotional that um, I, I know. I Apologies, but it's only I know it's the last couple of minutes only of that symphony. But um, that, that, that stillness there—it was something that's given and created by the audience. It was, it was, of course, it was site-specific in the sense that it was the, the, the lighting had gone down in the concert hall. But nonetheless, that was not a, a silence that was, or a, a potential quietness on behalf of us listeners that was. Forced. it was it was it felt like the destination of what the the whole symphony was and to have a a symphony whose destination is two or 3 minutes of deep listening is a, an astonishing feat of performance and an astonishing feat of composition too but the concept of deep listening has a precise history because it has, it's a practice and sound world that's indebted to the American composer and improviser Pauline Oliveros. She's at the left of the camper van there, um, who died in 2016 at the age of uh, 84. Now, it's not just that deep listening is her idea. It's also her album and her band. Uh, and it comes from a, a very specific moment in 1988 where deep listening as a practice and as a pretty terrible pun it gets cemented in Pauline's life, and uh, music-making thanks to a disused uh, military facility deep under the ground of an otherwise remarkable bit of country in America's Washington state. Uh, in the autumn of that year, 1988, the trombonist Stuart Dempster asked Pauline and the vocalist Panayotis to stop off on their way to a concert to experience the most, one of the most amazing man-made acoustics ever created uh, – a cistern, an underground military bunker at Fort Warden in Port Townsend, 70 miles northwest of Seattle, in which, 40, 14 feet underground, there is a reverberation time of 45 seconds. And when you consider that the reverberation time in St Paul's Cathedral, not so very far from where we're speaking now, is 11 seconds, that gives you an idea of the, the gigantic cavernous sense of space uh, that this, this, this cistern had. Um, but as James Bull of Gresham College was telling me, in fact, the world record for the largest reverberation time in a man-made space is an inch and down in Scotland. Uh, it's at a Royal Navy oil uh, depot, which you have access to through tunnels in the hill. And down there, you'll find a reverberation time of 112 seconds. But that was only discovered in 2014 magic isn't it pauline should have been there of course but anyway um so playing in this acoustic with such a long reverberation time again creating these site-specific soundscapes from uh, from from that place uh, is uh, presents special problems for the musicians because if everything you every sound you make in the air is going to last that long uh, you have they had they reported an uncanny sensation that they didn't know what was reflected sound and what were the new sounds that they were making so effectively all of them were performing with the shadows of the sounds they made playing with echoes so that the performance we'll hear a fragment of is a a feedback loop with their own musical pasts it's as if the music is listening to itself. So, a site specific environment for, uh, for listening. Let's hear uh, a track that was recorded in 1988 in this, uh, this completely improvised uh, session that happened in Fort Warden, uh, the inauguration of the Deep Listening Band, music from Lear. polyuniverse's deep listening band now that's a recording of that very site specific um uh, lo- location uh, th- there will be time for questions th- th- I'm hoping at the, at the <laughs> before the hour is up um i'm i've um because i've talked at greater length than anticipated about Pauline and Gustave and Richard uh, I want to uh, bring Jez Riley French to to the uh, to the platform very shortly uh, in in order to to discover more about John Luther Adams's Become Ocean I urge you to uh, read the transcript of this talk which is which is online at Gresham's website uh, in in summary that the point about this piece is is a a composer who's made uh, decades of work in environments, uh, working with music with an absolutely ecological and environmental uh, purpose, uh, here repurposing the orchestra as a place for an overwhelming soundscape as as site-specific, as careful in its calibration as as the prelude from Wagner's Parsifal, but with the... But with the idea to give us in the audience in a concert hall, again transforming a concert hall environment into a place of musical ecology. It's a piece I would urge you to listen and it's the single longest evocation or or rather embodiment of the uh, kind of oceanic consciousness in the orchestral repertoire 45 minute long orchestral piece composed in 2013. Um, that's 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 one of the heart parts from it and this is what I was going to play you, but, um, uh, but even better, it's now time to welcome to the stage uh, Jez Riley, French composer, and we're going to think with him, having th- thought about soundscapes in opera houses and concert halls and the idea of particular acoustics and environments giving rise to deep listening, uh, Jez, we're going to think about music uh, and ecology and indeed the, the ecology of music and the, the relationship between the two. Please welcome Jez Riley, French. Yes, thank you. Just b- before we start, before you tell us about this, does, uh, is there, what's the relationship for you? We'll, we'll hear one specific piece later in which you're recording, working with the, the sounds of empty concert halls, rather like what we heard at the end of Mahler's Ninth Symphony, but you're uh, making a different kind of piece from them. Mm. Is, there, is, is there a connection between you and Wagner in that way, in terms of... Did you buy any of this, the idea of soundscapes. Not at, all. Not, Not at all. C- Not at c- all. Very Not good. whatsoever. Yeah, very good. yeah good okay. Um, well that said I'm glad you're here. Uh, so, <laughs> Thanks and, for the invite. Uh, no it's a pleasure. But the, but the, the connection between the, the creation of these uh, sites for listening that yes. is going to take us take us out of ourselves that can be created in consoles and of course it can be created uh, when you're listening to environments. Yeah in, for in me it YouTube. started
1: as a, I was a choir boy uh, when I was uh, I think I was 10 when I first started and we had a really sadistic um, Choir master He used to make us sit and listen to the church for like ten minutes before each rehearsal. In silence. listen to the church. Yeah. yeah. So at the time, it was really annoying. But I think it, <laughs> I think it really gave me this sort of love for the sound of architecture. You know, just just listening to to buildings quietly. That that was for me. and the, and the link to the music was came from that kind of experience of listening in silence and then singing in the space. You know, that was mine.
0: So it, was how did you how did you then. Uh, Transform that experience into, into what you do with microphones and into taking that listening not only in buildings or, but, but also to the, the natural environment as well? Um, a series of accidents. Most of my life has been a series of accidents.
1: Uh, I, got, I got given a, a cassette recorder for my 12th birthday uh, to record John Peel off the radio, basically, <laughs> bootlegging BBC. Um, but you know, we all did it. But I, I just started sort of recording sounds around the garden and stuff like that. It was a purely you know, intuitive kind of, how can I use this little recorder? Sort of thing. And it went from there. It just got more and more into listening as, rather than collecting sounds.
0: That was the, that was the, the change, really. Uh, th- th- this first line, th- 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 there's a reason you've chosen this. Uh, yeah,
1: well, I just really love this line here. Um, At the top of this line? Yeah, the posture of being all ears, giving in to a listening for what's inaudible. Because much of my work uses um, specialist microphones or devices to listen to sounds that we can't normally hear with our ears naked ears although in some way need, need that extra device to, to access uh, so I just thought that was really nice, nice quote from a, a Japanese French uh, poet
0: uh, and so what, what then are the kind of techniques that you're using to listen deeply to environments which are otherwise inaccessible or maybe on the edges of our hearing and indeed our, our auditory perception
1: so I use contact microphones a lot which pick up sound through vibration so directly, on, directly on, on, on surfaces and materials yeah uh, hydrophones for listening in water, geophones to listen to the infrasound of the world turning or, or really low-frequency sound, ultrasonic detectors for the high-frequency sounds above our range of hearing. What was that? <laughs> the door. <laughs> <laughs> that was carefully planned. That it took was, absolutely. That, took us weeks to organise. Exactly. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: and, th- and this, you see, that w- one of the things, uh, the, one of the connections that that John Luther Adams wants us to, wants us to make on Pauline Oliveros too, oh. with the, with the ideology, with the uh, the ideas of deep listening is to attune us into environmental listening so that we, and as Aaron as Murray Schaefer said as well, and there are different ways Mahler and Wagner wanted us to do too, to be more sensitive to those yes, yeah, acoustic yeah. environments, those sonic environments, to take responsibility for them. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that's often um, discovered or thought is that we, we still have, even in, in, even in field recording, uh, an idea of uh, the, the, the sounds of, of, of that image there, are yes. uh, bucolic you know, the, the, um, somehow uh, that we as a human species are going to hear lovely sounds of winds and birds, and isn't that delightful? Uh, so you know, we're still actually putting ourselves on that landscape. But this this, this slide tells a particular yeah. Story it's about it's, that. I
1: mean, it's all about perception, isn't it? That's the thing. And, and this was a quite a pivotal piece for me in the sort of early eighties. This is just a bad uh, image from a photocopy handout. But there was a series of commissions in a forest in North Yorkshire, um, and I was the third, I think, in the series. And when I got there, I read the comments from the piece that had been before, which I think was a string, a string piece, piece for strings. And the comments were almost all negative, all saying, how dare you do this to our beautiful forest? And so I, I'd, I'd created a piece for guitar feedback, but I, I changed what I was going to do. So I installed a new piece, left, came back at the end of three weeks, read the comments, all negative, how dare you... I hadn't been playing anything through the speakers at all. There was no sound.
0: You hadn't been... The speakers nothing. were there? Yeah, it was but completely silent.
1: <laughs> so basically people were listening harder and they thought I was amplifying the sound of bird song or the trees or the wind. But I was doing nothing. It was just they saw a speaker and assumed something was coming out of it. So that- <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, well, what, what
0: does that tell you about our relationship with our sonic Well, we invent
1: it, you know, and, and we're constantly, like, like you said, the, the sort of country idol idea of nature, when, in fact, nature, if, if you go and listen to a meadow in the summer and you sit there thinking, this is beautiful, for every other species it's a slaughterhouse and a battle yard. You know, it's, it's not peaceful for every other species, it's just our perception. Mm. And, I mean, it's, you can still sit there and enjoy it and think it's beautiful, <laughs> but I just think knowing that, knowing
0: that it's, we're creating that, I think, matters, you know, I think it's important. It's, all, it's then about taking responsibility. Now, well, that proves the point of, of how listening itself changes the environment, changes our relationship True. with the environment, possibly even changes the environment itself. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely.
0: Um, so <laughs> some examples then of, of, of what we, of what you've been able to, uh, well, to allow us to hear that wouldn't have been heard otherwise.
1: Yeah, these are telefericas, which I'm kind of obsessed with. Um, they're in northern Italy. The, the long zip wires basically for bringing building materials down from the, the forest into, into the villages. And if you walk up to one, they're silent, you know, you can't hear them. Um, but if you put these contact mics on, you get to hear this amazing kind of soundscape. This is the wind blowing the wires and also little insects or branches hitting the, hitting the cables.
0: There's
1: a stunning variety of... Yeah, I mean, I think the, one of the things that's really important for me to say is I'm not a sound collector, um, so I'm not interested in just finding odd sounds. For me, it's about the experience of listening. So with, that, with all of my work, it's durational, so I, I'll sit and listen to those for eight, nine hours. And, you know, that's, that's how I get into all of the variety of what's there. Because if I was just interested in, oh, there's a weird sound, I'd collect it to make a <laughs> library from it. I'd record two or three minutes, and then I wouldn't hear the sort of way that the wind alters the sort of ebb and flow of the sounds and the, the temperature changes and the cables tighten. It, you know, it changes all the time. So,
0: so are you composing what we've heard then, or is that... That's that's just a straight story?
1: recording. Most of my work... I mean, I used to compose with field recordings when I first started, but for the last 10, 15 years, most of my work is just straight a straight recording.
0: Do you feel in that kind of situation that you are nonetheless... Is the environment and, and is the telegraph uh, is that iron wire and all the sounds you 're hearing kind of composing your perception, or is it the other way around you know is, is, is it how much is it the, the attention you're giving to it how much Well, I think the
1: attention is the composition I mean okay. I think with with field recording when you 're out with a recorder the first act of composition is pressing record you know and the last act is pressing stop, and then you've got to listen to eight hours of, <laughs> <laughs> of
0: recording so v- Wagnerian duration is just another connection. <laughs> um uh, yeah uh, well and the the next example here salts adagio is this is this is a project which is made from the reverberations of uh, or yeah this, this,
1: this the, the interiors
0: of concert halls stimulation I
1: mean somewhere. I'm really passionate about listening as, you know as a, as a person rather than a, you know I, I love listening and I I kind of like listening in very weird places so <laughs> I like well, I like if I can get permission I like Climbing underneath the stages when orchestras are playing or going up into the ceiling. Because I just love the fact that, you know, as, as a composer, you get to play in, or have your pieces played in amazing buildings, but you very rarely actually play with the building. And I love that. So I, I've done these series of works, which I've re um, adagios for, like, durational performances, and I've mic'd up the entire building. Uh, and record them with contact mics and geophones to pick up the reverberation of the architecture so that the building is sounded by the musicians
0: but i mean, I mean on, uh, that, that, that is the point about what all the i mean that, that, I, I, I know I'm making laborious connections, which you don't necessarily agree with, but it seems to me that, no the, that, the, the, that well, precisely that Mahler example is written for a mm. very particular concert hall environment in which there are certain expectations around environmental quiet in which that can yeah, happen yeah. and in which that performance is going to be received. Well, I mean, so, a lot of
1: music works, like the church composers, you know, Talis and uh, were for specific churches. All
0: you know. those, the churches in Venice as well. They're, they're yeah, very, yeah. they they have very different tones and part.
1: different overtones. Yeah. But the
0: difference here is that you're attaching... The, the, so what we're going to hear then is is the sounds of the building itself being agitated, stimulated yes. into vibration, rather than, you know, sticking a stereo pair of microphones exactly, in. The exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So
1: it's, it's a bit, I suppose, it's a, like to use a visual analogy, it's a bit like using a very soft focus lens on the orchestra. range frequencies that are technically would be regarded as wrong wrong you know i mean like acoustic engineers would say oh god you know you've got all that mushy mid, mid-range frequency that's not supposed to be there but i, I love it anything that's wrong i'm straight there
0: <laughs> but it is you know these are well i was going to say they're echoes but in a way that they're not I mean, these are real sounds which are always there as part of our experience in concert mm. halls or lecture theaters like this but which we're not usually what, not usually attuned to. I, I keep thinking when I'm hearing all this just that you're you're listening not only deeply but it's you know it's inside, it's yeah. inside materials, it's inside a wire, it's inside the fabric of a building, it's in, in inside in some cases and perhaps we'll hear later the uh, the earth itself.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't really know where that came from in my twisted mind, <laughs> but I do like getting under the surface of things. You know, I don't know, I don't know where it came from.
0: Is, is there, is there I, do, is, has Pauline Oliveros been input? I mean, the no. thing. No, uh,
1: um, I mean I discovered Oliveros much later. And mm. we were just talking outside actually about mm. the internet. And I mean, I stumbled across Pauline Oliveros by buying a, a CD in a sale, like that was like a pound because the shop couldn't sell it. But uh, the, back in those oh. <laughs> old days, you couldn't go online and find out who Pauline Oliveros was, or and especially in Hull, you couldn't go and buy a book <laughs> about Pauline Oliveros. So it was really hard to discover all that. The mm. first musician I actually discovered was Anne A. Lockwood, Lockwood, who's actually in London next mm. week. She's, she's right up there. I mean, if you don't know mm. her, go and see her work. Cafe Otto. Café Otto. Mm. Um, I discovered that through, through folk music, because a, a label that did a lot of Scottish folk music also reissued the Glass World of. Uh, and I discovered her work, and then I managed to find something in the library that was, um, I think, a Tiger Balm music or whatever, which is a, a, deep, a kind of deep listening piece from before for Oliveros, I think. Uh, so that was my, my connection. But Oliveros, I found about much later.
0: The, the, this more directly um, environment... It sounds of the yeah. natural environment now. Uh, and uh, Again, it's, it's one of the things we've uh, uh, skirted around in this series is the, the listening, you've already described it, the idea that when we attend to something, when we listen mm. to something, we assign special qualities to it. Whether you want to call it music, whatever, it doesn't matter what that label is particularly. The oh. act of attention itself being really the definitive thing yeah. and yeah. That, that's obviously what's happening here in, in creatively opening up these sound worlds in the natural world that we're just not aware of without, your, without you
1: yeah and there are, well I mean there's other people doing well, it well. but without you <laughs> it's not work. obvious but um, yeah I mean this is a, this is a prime example and, and the other thing is you know we can talk about it and we can contextualise it this is just great. It's just, this is the sound of a rock dissolving. A rock dissolving? Just a, just a rock dissolving. I mean, I'm from Yorkshire, so having an installation with a tiny piece of rock that costs nothing, that you picked up outside, and then tuba- it acid. You know, it's like cheap. So,
0: so the process is so the, it's rock dissolving in acid. So this is a rock so dissolving. So it's a small theatre in which this is happening. Exactly. So but there's a massive range of sounds there. So it should... <laughs> the, the, the of all, that's guy. just a bit of a
1: bit of air trapped in the rock <laughs> coming out you know right. and if you listen over the course of five or six hours to a little pebbles <laughs> It's been, you'll hear little rhythms building up and then falling away as, as, the, as the gases or the, the air so, has been released. So
0: are, is, what, what is your perception doing here? I mean, in other words, are you musicalising what's happening? Precisely with that, by, by identifying patterns that are there, but the rock itself isn't trying to give you rhythmic patterns, right? You're, no, you're, exactly. You're projecting,
1: yeah, think. exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when I'm sat there listening, you know, I, I can try and analyse it and say, you know, why am I listening past the first hour? Um, <laughs> Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm either a genius or I'm insane. But <laughs> no, but it, I am just hooked by this stuff. And funny enough, somebody asked me about this and, and about VLF, which has a very similar sound but much higher frequency. Yeah. VLF is um, the radio fallout of sounds in space. And somebody commented that all of this stuff sounds like the crackling of an old vinyl LP. And I think that might be one of the reasons why I'm initially attracted to these sounds, because it's kind of that, you know, we all had that in our teenage years listening to the crackling of a brand new LP, just getting really annoyed and trying to work out a way to be
0: happy about it. <laughs> what what, hap- what happens to you during the recording process? I'm not sure is the next one uh, are we in Iceland next yes yeah. because it's, it, again Iceland's another place uh, well, actually, particularly right now it's become a very fashionable tourist destination all yeah. sorts of debates there about the impact of if you like listeners in the environment or tourists in that environment people who go to see and to hear in a way yeah. uh, and who then are having a deep impact on that environment coming back but also it's a place where there's a particular association around again a kind of sublime about what these sounds might be glaciers and their wonder and, and all that sort of thing. Do, mm. What's your relationship with, with an environment like this when you're in it that long? Do you, are you seeking to become part of it, or are you... Again, I'll force another uh, connection here, but in that Wagnerian sense of you know, us being celebrants at the, uh, at the ritual of Bar- becoming part of something bigger than ourselves, absolutely what Wagner's intention, mm. Mars is, Pauline Olivares is too. Is it yours as well here? Is it your experience in these environments?
1: Well, I think, for, for me, I do become a part of that space and that time. Um, I don't seek to, as in, I I don't know if I I can verbalise it, but um, I don't go out looking for recordings. I just carry my gear with me at all times, and sometimes I'll feel the urge to press record or to listen. Um, This this is slightly different because, you know, if you travel to Iceland, obviously you kind of, you know you're going (laughs) to go there and record, you know. Um, And this, this particular, this is actually a really sad story, actually, in terms of that impact. This is Fjällsalon, which is behind Jökelsalon, which is a really famous glacial lake in in, uh, the south of Iceland. You know, huge tourist area, loads of coaches turning up. This was the secret one behind. And this was the last glacial lake in Iceland to not have a motorboat service on it for tourists. You could pay 20 euros and get driven around and then chip some ice off and put it in a vodka. That's what they do there. Mm -hmm. And this was the last one, and the week we were there, they were building the sheds to put a motorboat service on, on this one. But you know, we, we went there, it was a seven hour drive from where we were staying to get to this. And we went there thinking we'd record for like two or three hours. It, it, was, it was a workshop, I do a lot of workshops. And a lot, quite a lot of the recorders were like, two or three hours, Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> quite a lot of them are sound designers, and so they wanted 30 seconds and they were off. But we stayed there for eight or nine hours. You know, we had to—we literally had to round people up because they were just so immersed in the, in the amazing experience of being. It's a hell of a privilege to sit there and listen to a glacier dissolving.
0: So here, this is a glacier dissolving. This is recorded
1: with hydrophones directly into the mm-hmm. into the water. So special microphones for underwater. Oh, hang on. Let's try that again. No, nope, that's the. <laughs>
0: Here. This is underwater
1: sound. This is underwater. So this is basically ten thousand year old air that's been trapped in the glacier, slowly coming out of the of the the lumps of ice as it as the drift past. The hydrophones were literally just just where this photograph is. It's quite bird like as well in yeah. parts,
0: that type of yeah. tweet. It's a, it's a completely different sound to whatever those images of glacier dissolution might have suggested before mm. you hear it.
1: Mm. Amazing place. It's just like, like I say, a hell of a privilege to go there and record
0: you know, and listen. And also the place, of course, where the myths of... Uh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> the, uh, um, the, you've got a, a, a final example, which is uh, w- w- one of these things which, when when you say it, just seems uh, impossible that we're going to be able to hear this. But this is the, the sound of the rotation of of the earth and the idea of deep listening the idea you can't get much was, deeper than that <laughs> No. so, so how, how do you record and again uh, and, uh, the, the, the impact on you as a listener uh, mm. of course acoustically but also well, uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting
1: because you can't hear this when you're in the field recording it because the frequency is too low so
0: it's infrasound isn't it's it?
1: infrasound um, I, I use geophones which are usually made for measuring seismic activity on a, like a visual readout I've adapted them for audio so in, in your headphones and through your recorder's preamp, the, the headphone amplifier, you can you can kind of hear something's happening, but it's, it's, there's nothing there. You just have to watch your meters and see that something happening. And then when you get get back, you can kind of process it so that you can hear about 20, 20 hertz and upwards. We can only hear down to about 20 hertz. I can actually hear down to 17 hertz in one ear, um, and I don't know why. But, um, but most of this is inaudible. If we had massive subspeakers here, you'd feel it as a force.
0: And, and how did you do this? I mean, how deep are you in the earth here? Is this just a, a crack on the surface? Or how, how, does it work? how did you physically record this?
1: Oh, well, this is a very lovely image of it. But actually, the geophone was just stuck in a bit of mud outside this cave. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nonetheless. So here's the sound.
1: thing about infrasound is it's here now you know, it's all around us and it mm. actually controls our bodies so our, our internal organs it's are regulated really by, by the by the vibration our eyeballs everything is regulated by the vibration it's,
0: it's having you can feel this very directly that's mm. what I mean. it also Jez, genuinely does remind me, honestly, it reminds me of, of the beginning of that E-flat, <laughs> the, the beginning of Das right This is what Wagner wanted. You want a better creation myth than this, you want the beginning of Das Rheingold and now the rotation of the earth. That is deep <laughs> listening. Um, Jez, thank you very, very much. Thank Anita. you. Just, just a, a very uh, final thing. We can keep the infrasound or right if you like. So, uh, one of uh, Pauline Oliveris' uh, deep listening meditations, uh, making this connection between our responsibility, as uh, our Murray Schaefer has put in everything we've heard today, uh, as you listen, the particles of sound, which Pauline Oliver has called phonons, decide to be heard. Listening affects what is sounding. The relationship is symbiotic. As you listen, the environment is enlivened. This is the listening effect.